Take your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to start in chapter 6, really. We're going to start in chapter 6, start the reading in verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff (laughs) swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. 
And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died And the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. And he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Your word reveals who you are. And, O God, we ask that we would see you and know you through your word, through the working of your spirit, even now. Illumine the scriptures to our mind. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take you back in time, 17 and a half years, I guess. Right? Yeah, that's about right. 9 11. It's crazy to think that's almost two decades ago, isn't it? Don't feel old. You'll miss the rest of the sermon. You remember 9 11 for those that are old enough to have actually been born at that point? Uh, you remember the, the terror that hit that day. You remember the exact time and place where you you heard about it. You remember the exact kind of way you felt. You you remember probably most likely everything about it. For me, I I remember I was in seminary. I remember my mom calling and saying, son, you need to go downstairs. You need to turn on the television. There are a lot of people having a really bad day today. I was like, that's the weirdest thing my mother has ever said. Then I turned the television on and I was like, it makes total sense. 
And you remember kind of all of the, the confusion uh, that was surrounding 9-11, how they, they shut down all the airports because they didn't know if there was going to be more of the same. Right? And you remember you have friends that were stuck in places. Uh, I mean, Chad Nicholson was stuck in that, couldn't travel. You remember how we just didn't know what to expect, and so everything was kind of you know, pins and needles on tenterhooks because you didn't know uh, what was coming next. And you remember so much of the conversation, it, it echoed one of the great headlines, uh, uh, one of the most famous newspapers in the UK. The next morning ran a giant headline that said, terrorists strike the heart of the U.S. And it's an interesting kind of thing to think about if you think about 9-11 is striking the heart of the U.S. I mean, if you kind of pause and reflect on that, like, it's not anywhere near the heart geographically. I'm going to confess a little bit here. I've not been to any of those places because I haven't been that far north. I live in the south. I've never been to New York. I've touched down in Chicago once en route flying to Europe, but I've never been up there. Is that really the heart of the United States? I mean, what makes the U.S. the U.S.? Well, maybe it's our military. They they tried to get the heart of the military. No, actually, (laughs) that would be like in Colorado and Montana in the places that nobody knows about. uh, Because if you get those places, then our military actually takes a hit. Where that plane crashed, nothing damaged to our military. Loss of life, yes. Upset danger to national security. You know, oh, no, our military. No, no. It's not where our bombs are. That's not where our drones are. That's not where the most important things are. Well, maybe it's our culture that they were going after. Some of you may actually remember this. I guess that was midweek, right? That weekend was, if I'm not mistaken, was the Oscars in Hollywood. You know, like, if you really want to go after American culture, if that's what you hate, you bombed the wrong coast. Like, you should have been in California, not on the East Coast. Well, maybe they went after the financial center, and fair enough on that one. You really actually begin to understand when you think about what they were really going after. They had no chance to upset this country in the sense of they couldn't throw it into turmoil. Right? You need to go after the CDC to do that or you need to go after the, the power grid. Blow up the Internet at this point today. Blow up Amazon. If their servers go down, we're all in deep, deep trouble. Amazon runs the Internet, in case you didn't know that. But what were they doing? They were trying to strike a blow at the American self-identity. What does it mean to be American? And their understanding was it means the Twin Towers and it means the Pentagon. Give the Statue of Liberty, you got a better idea of it. But that's what they were attempting to do to strike at what it means to be American. It's why one of the most interesting, and I think my favorite parts out of the entire 9-11 experience was a couple of weeks later. You remember New York was shut down for a long time as they're having to do cleanup, as they're trying to find out where the missing people are and everything. And and it, it was so significant when things finally began to kind of return to normal. The first baseball game they had. You may remember this. It was really significant. It's the greatest pitch ever thrown in any baseball game ever. Because the opening pitch to the Yankees game was President Bush. 
the time, we still didn't have enough details as to what was going on. Uh, President Bush had just come out and said that we will retaliate and we'll do whatever. And maybe you agree with that, maybe you don't, I don't really care, it's not important. He didn't know that he wasn't going to be assassinated for showing up at this ballgame. And so he's in behind the scenes in the tunnels wearing the heaviest bulletproof vest that has ever been made. And it's time for them, you know, he's getting ready to go out and he's talking with one of the Yankees players. And the guy said, look, just the only thing that matters is please do not throw a ridiculous sissy pitch. (laughs) You have to convey strength. And it's one of my family still gives me chills today to watch it. If you remember, President Bush walked out, head held high, shoulders back, waved maybe four or five times, walks up to the mound, grabs the ball and grooves a perfect fastball, waves about three or four times, head held high and straight back into the dugout. And it was like, look, they tried to take our identity, but we have won. Was that, that was the moment where America kind of co- like coalesced to, they can't upset us, we will win. It was a battle of identities, a battle of, of ideologies. It's a battle of what's important. Because we don't read ancient Egyptian culture and archaeology for fun, most of us at least. I mean, I do, but you don't. We forget that that's actually what's happening in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is not simply a story of God sending a, a bozo and his brother, who's at the beginning not quite so much of a bozo, but does the big bozo thing later. Not sending these two goofballs in to go do battle against Egypt and then just take the people out. It's not just a book of some of the most shocking miracles in human history. I mean, the sea opens up and swallows the greatest army the world had seen at that point. It's, it's not just a story of, of uh, amazing things like serpents swallowing serpents and, ah, this is unbelievable. The way this is being told is this is a battle between the gods. This is a battle between the gods of Egypt, the gods of the land. This is a battle between all the things that are important to the pagans and the living God. Yahweh, the God of Israel. And of course, you know the story, so you know who wins. But if you're reading the Bible cover to cover, you would have to ask, well, what's going to happen I mean, out of, out of all the gods around, it would seem that Egypt's are, at this point, seemingly maybe the best. I mean, Egypt's a powerhouse. It has been, at this point, for better part of a thousand years. Been a major plague in Israel's history off and on for up to this point and much after this point. One of the genuine great dynasties in human history. And so when we get to the end of chapter 6, and it's, these are the, the guys that God sends. These are the men. It's, it's Moses and it's Aaron. And they are priests. And they're priests because their family tree doesn't fully split the way that we might like it to today. Because they're priests on both sides. These are God's men. And God has chosen them because God is going to war. It's why Moses' question at the end of verse 30, this, again, 
frequent refrain from him. How are you going to do that? I'm a mess. I think he's probably picked up on that by now, Moses. But Moses, you've missed the point. It's not about you. The same way is it's actually not about Pharaoh. Moses is not the center point in this story. He's not the hero of the story. He's not even the main figure of the story. This is a story of God defeating the false gods. Yahweh goes to war. It's interesting as it begins here in chapter 7, your ESV makes a little translational help to you to kind of help you understand exactly how this is going to work, to help kind of clue you in so you don't get hung up in the grammar maybe. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses, see, I made you like God. That's actually not exactly right. See, I have made you God to Pharaoh. That's actually what it says. I've made you God to Pharaoh because what God is acknowledging and upfront staging is, look, this conversation that you are having with the king of Egypt is not a conversation between you and him. It is a conversation between me and him and me and his gods. So when he looks at you, he's not looking at a guy who may or may not have a speech impediment, who may or may not speak unbelievably elegantly, I tend to think the second. He's not looking at Aaron. That's not the issue is when he interacts with you, he's ultimately interacting with me. You are the personification of my word to him. And because of that, you will go to him and you will speak to him and you will tell him to free my people and what will happen? Yeah, let him go, right? Yay! No. No. No, he's not going to let him go. He's not going to let him go quickly. In fact, what's going to happen is his heart will be hardened because God will harden it. God will harden his heart so that his victory is not displayed at first. So that his victory is not displayed in simply a simple question and a simple answer. He could have done that. You realize that. God should have, could have showcased his immense power by simply saying, Hey, Moses, you go ask Pharaoh and I will make Pharaoh say yes. And that's it. And the story's over. And that's how powerful I am. I mean, scriptures are abundantly clear. The heart of the king is like water in the hands of the Lord. He could have shown his power by turning Pharaoh's heart. Yeah, it would have been economic devastation to Egypt. That's fine. Yeah, it would have been, you know, unbelievable show of weakness on Pharaoh's part. That's fine. The Lord could have done that. Instead, choosing to showcase his mighty power. Verse 4, Pharaoh will not Listen to you. It's not up for negotiation. It's not even going to be a surprise. Don't be shocked. He's not going to listen. And the reason he won't listen is so that I will accomplish it. I will lay my hand on Egypt. I will bring my host, my people, the children of Egypt, out of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, and I will do this by great acts of judgment. Why? Because, Moses, you're not the center of the story. It's never been about you, Moses. It's not about Pharaoh. It is about me, God. Verse 5, what's his explanation? The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord 
when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. They're going to acknowledge. They have to. They're going to be conquered by this God they don't even know yet. And I will showcase my great victory. Oh yeah, by the way, this is going to be done by two 80-year-old dudes. I love that it just kind of throws that in there. We're not talking about great and mighty warriors here. I mean, no offense to those of you in your 80s and 83. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean any offense. But we're not talking about the most agile. We're not talking about the strongest. The scriptures are abundantly clear in highlighting verse 6. They're, they're in, seven. They're in their 80s. These are just two guys who are going because their God has told them to. Our next paragraph begins to introduce what is, as a child, one of my favorite parts of the story because it is perhaps the strangest, certainly the most, well, not the most disgusting, but it's fairly up there and uh, gives us the heebie-jeebies. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron, by the way, look, when you go, what I'm going to continue to do, the mechanism whereby I accomplish my victory is going to be through sign acts. Now, we have in English reduced that to plagues. The problem is that misses actually the larger emphasis of what he's doing. God is intentionally putting his power on on display as a giant flashing neon sign pointing you the right way to the right thing. You know, it's like when you're you know, driving late at night and you, you're, you know, your stomach's kind of rumbling a little bit and, and you see the hot donuts now sign flashing. <laughs> right? Does that catch your attention? Yes, Krispy Kreme. And you pull off for some glazed donuts at Krispy Kreme. It's likewise, it's the same thing. It's that flashing neon street sign designed to catch your eye so that it's, look, this is God we're talking about. And as part of how that's going to operate, he gives a number of signs. Remember, he did the amazing, hey, look, I have leprosy. Hey, look, it's gone. Hey, look, I have leprosy. Hey, look, it's gone. Amazing, amazing thing. So now he goes before Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron do, they, they go, take the staff and throw it down on the ground. And again, for us, this is, as a child growing up, this was my favorite because it was so disgusting and so icky and so gross because I hate snakes, but missed maybe some of the significance of what's taking place here. You have to remember that snakes were sacred in Egypt. You remember, you've seen most of the pharaohs, you know exactly, they have the, you know, the big fun headdress, and they all have the little you know, the headband and the, the cool, amazing little goatee that none of us could ever possibly grow, but is unbelievably neat and spiffy. But you remember the, the, little, the little band of gold that they would wear? Do you remember what it's like? I mean, you probably have it in your, you can see the mental picture. You've seen the movies. Right? What's on the front of it? A little snake sticking out on the front. Because it was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of authority. See, the Lord, when he's sending them in with a staff that turns into a snake, it's not just a, oh, by the way, that's disgusting. I mean, it's not also just simply a, a display of power. I mean, he could have had a staff that turned into a crocodile. That would really freak me out. He could have done it, though. He could have had a staff that turned into a bunny. It would have been amazing. I would have done that all the time. 
But instead, he chooses intentionally as his object the animal that is the symbol of authority in Egypt. Moses chucks the staff down, Aaron chucks the staff down, and it turns into most likely, I suspect, a cobra. I suspect it's probably a female cobra. It's most likely the hooded cobra that everybody is familiar with, particularly if you're my age and played with G.I. Joes and you know Cobra Command. A giant one. We're not talking some little, like, three-foot snake, like, ooh, that's... You have to remember, cobras are big critters, right? If you've been to the Columbia Zoo, anybody actually gone and, like, tapped on the cobra tank, right? You remember that snake at the Columbia Zoo is 12 feet long. A 12-foot-long cobra. That's messed up. That's what Moses and Aaron do right in Pharaoh's midst. And I love how the, the text doesn't really acknowledge any bit of, like, upsetness in the text. They chuck the staff down. It turns into a serpent. And everybody's like, oh, okay, go get the wise men. We'll see if they can do the same thing. Like, I'm not okay with that. There's a snake in our midst. I'm not okay with that, but all right. Instead, Pharaoh, verse 11, summons the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Now, we have a couple of options as to what is going on here, what their secret arts are. And I love how uh, in the idea of uh, the English language, we capture both of them in the same word. They're magicians. And today, we've all seen that magician that makes an animal appear out of nowhere. Guy takes his hat off. Oh, look, there's a pigeon in it. Or whatever, dove or bunny or whoever. It doesn't matter what it is. And we all know, what is the magician actually doing? Well, it's a sleight of hand. It's an illusion. He, he has the animal hidden somewhere else. We actually have archaeological evidence, documents written by ancient Egyptians that they had a way to pinch a snake's neck to, like, put it into a catatonic stupor. You know, if you ever watched the nature show and the way to like, if you flip a shark over, rub its belly, it falls asleep. The same kind of thing could happen in Egypt. I tend to think that's a bit of hokum, but whatever. Um, that's insane to me. The other option for that word magician is not just an illusionist, someone who practices sleight of hand, but someone who practices magic. And by that, we mean real and actual magic. Now, if we want to put that in proper biblical term, uh, proper biblical terminology, we would say someone who is channeling the power of a demon. Someone who is accessing the spiritual realm, spiritual power, but not through the Lord himself, but through demonic influence. And if that is the case, their staffs turn into snakes by the influence of demon. I honestly don't know which one it is. I don't think it really matters in either case. Because the end result is the same. Either way, you have God's cobra and you have their cobras and suddenly God's cobra gets a bit hungry. It doesn't just attack them and kill them. Could have done that. That would have been awesome in its own right. But instead attacks and eats them. There's a significance to that as uh, verse 12 says, each man cast down his staff, they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. That's going to be the same verbiage that's used for when the Red Sea swallows Egypt as a whole. What is God doing? He's displaying their power, their gods, the serpent that they even wear on their own king's head. Ha! 
is laughably small. And the Psalms say the Lord holds them in derision. I'm, I'm fairly certain this qualifies. Oh, yeah, you have your God? Yeah, let's, uh, let's have my, 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 you know, my staff. Let's just eat it. Just, just consume it. Just eat it. And I love the fact that each man cast down his staff. They became serpents. And the one snake of God eats them all. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened. I'm going to be honest with you. That's a pretty shocking display right there in their midst. I would have been unbelievably creeped out when Aaron reaches down, grabs the tail of his snake, pulls it up, and boom, there's staff again, and I don't know how he did it. Our God, the living God, has defeated their serpent God. And that would have been unbelievably significant. You, you really couldn't think of anything greater. Well, I mean, I guess there's only a couple of gods greater than their serpent gods in Egypt. In fact, actually, I think there's only really two that I know of. One is the Nile and the other is the sun, which are both coming, right? The Lord then, for the first plague, verse 14, says to Moses, go meet him. So in the morning, Pharaoh does his morning ritual, whether this is simply just going for a bath, going for a bathroom, uh, going for some ritual cleansing or some ritual offering to the Nile, doesn't really matter. Moses meets him there. And in perfect obedience, as is highlighted every time in chapter 7, it's the first time we get to see this from Moses, Moses and Aaron do exactly what God wanted, exactly right every single time. Somehow the switch flipped and they've gone from a bit of bozos to really great, amazing guys here in chapter 7. Verse 16, they tell that God has said, let my people go. And this is how they will know. It's time for round two. We've already seen the God of the Bible go against the God of the serpent. And it was not really a good contest because the God of the Bible took them on one to eight or whatever it was. And they lost eight to nothing. Now it's time for the God of the Bible to go against the God of the Nile. And to understand the significance of this, Egyptians would refer to themselves as children of the Nile. They were birthed by the Nile. And it makes sense. I mean, if you know, like, the the geography and the ecology of Egypt, it's hard to live anywhere in Egypt that's not right next to the Nile or one of its little tributaries or one of the, the channels or the bits of water coming off because there's no water. Like everything's dead except for the Nile. And so when Moses goes to war, God goes to war against the Nile, this would have been catastrophic. We're not talking like, oh, this is a mild inconvenience. This is end of times level difficulty. (laughs) What do they do? Well, they take the same staff that was the cobra serpent thing that already ate the other serpent things uh, in some fashion and now touches the water of the Nile and the, the Nile itself turns to blood. This is not like, oh no, they had a, you know, an Alabama red tide and it's just some weird fungus and maybe it's just regular water but they had some sort of floral, bl- no, it, it's turned to blood. And of course, you know what happens when fish get stuck in blood. 
doesn't go well for them. They die instantly. Everything in the sea, or everything in the Nile dies. It, it goes foul very rapidly. And as if that weren't enough, the coup de gras, the, the, the icing on the cake, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over, and I'm going to paraphrase, all standing water. So, we're going to go after not just the Nile that's flowing, but everything you've taken out of it in the past. If you took the Nile and stored a portion of it in your home, we're going after that too. It's not just flowing water in the Nile, it's the standing waters of the Nile. Everything, whether it's in the ponds, the canals, the rivers, whether it's even in the vessels in their home. If it is the Nile... It is turned to blood. Moms, can you imagine this? Right? Your, your little one just dirty diaper. It's getting ready time to change diaper, maybe feed kid. And then all of a sudden, where do you have water to feed your, like, what do you do with this? Like, oh no. How do I wash clothes? All I have available is blood. And when it comes time for me to, you know, cook my bread this afternoon, All I have available at the time is blood. And you see why immediately they start digging along the banks of the Nile in an attempt to find something that's drinkable. And somewhere they do. Obviously, Aaron's reach over his hands in the standing waters. He he obviously doesn't cover everything because the magicians themselves show up with waters of their own. I don't know where they got that from. It's obviously something he missed. And they, by their secret arts, either through some trickery or demonic influence, replicate the miracle. And I love how in both situations you get to see the fraudulent nature of the false god. The fraudulent nature. They're able to make snakes of a kind, but they're instantly killed. They're able to make blood of a kind in one little pot right there in front of them. You know, maybe they had one of the little, you know, uh, uh, little Splenda packets up their sleeve where they could, you know, turn their sleeve and jump in, you know, dump in the, the, the fruit punch flavored powder. And all of a sudden it's not blood, but it's just really thick Kool-Aid. I don't know. But they're able to manufacture it on the small scale, manufacture something directly in a pot in their midst. But it's, you can tell, fraudulent at nature, fraudulent at best. The Lord is showcasing victory. In some ways, I guess I'm preaching the same sermon next week. Don't get that spoiled because we're handling plagues two through eight next week as again he puts on display over and over and over again his great power the lord displays power over all things think about just the things that he's influenced in this chapter alone he's displayed power over the most powerful man in the world and changing his heart he's hardened it he's displayed power over uh, serpents and staffs I mean, that's pretty amazing, but he's been able to change the waters of the Nile, not just right in front of him, but at a distance and in your own home. Can you imagine being an Egyptian in that day and not even being aware of the conversation that's happening with, uh, with Moses? I, I, you know, there's some family somewhere where husband and wife were sitting there talking in whatever their din thing is, you know, whatever version. And uh, one of them was like, hey, I don't, honey, I'm thirsty. Would you just grab me a cup of water real quick? You know, and the spouse walks into the kitchen and is like, um, you're not going to believe this, 
Did you get this from the Nile? Well, yeah, I got it this morning. Are you sure? No, I got it. I got it this morning. Are you really? I mean, can you imagine the conversation of like not even knowing why suddenly everything in your house is blood? The Lord is powerful over even that. What do we do with a chapter like this besides really enjoy the cool story? It's true. Well, a number of applications. One is to be reminded that uh, the backdrop of all of the scriptures, from start to finish, the backdrop of all the scriptures is God will be victorious over his enemies. That has never been up for negotiation. It's never been up for debate. It's never been up for contest, ultimately. God will be victorious over his enemies. And it's interesting how so many cultures in human history have tried to offer maybe a a, a different way to approach that. You have the Far East that has offered the the yin and the yang, the, the perfectly balanced good and evil. Maybe that explains the difficulties of our world and a God that's good. No, no, no. No, the right way to understand the difficulties of our world and the God of the Bible is simply this. He will completely and totally destroy all of his enemies, but he is unbelievably patient. I mean, shockingly patient, staggeringly patient to think of how long he is willing to wait before he consumes his enemies. That's important for us to think through because if we don't know him, we have to understand that we are the enemies. As we talked about in Sunday school, which character in the story do we relate to? Well, if we are not in Christ, if we do not know the Lord, if we do not trust in King Jesus, have not been cleansed by his redeeming work, our identifying character, the person we are in the story, is the enemy. The one that's going to be destroyed, the one that's going to be wiped off the face of the earth, the one that will be contending against the living and true God and will lose because he is the mighty God. That can't be minimized. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult. It's not the easiest of of topics to preach about. It's certainly not the most enjoyable. I love to talk about ways we get comfort and how God takes care of us. But to be reminded, he will destroy his enemies. And that is not up for negotiation. We talked about this Thursday in Bible study with, this is part of the message that's given to Ezekiel. That God's doom is coming. His judgment is coming and it cannot be escaped in our own ability. You see, this is the background. This uh, impending judgment of God is the background that is so significant for when Jesus shows up. That Jesus would show up and provide a way to get out of the consequences of sin. That only matters if there are consequences. It only matters if sin is a problem. It only matters if judgment is real. If there's no judgment from God, we don't need a Savior because there's nothing to be saved from. I mean, maybe saved from our bad decisions, but I mean, come on. The background of the Scriptures is the wrath of God. It's righteous wrath 
That's well-deserved wrath. It's been completely earned by fighting against him, but it must not be neglected in our thinking. That's why how these things are so closely married in the scriptures when they're talked about. Think about one of the greatest passages to talk about uh, salvation itself, Ephesians 2. It's great, right? It's by grace you have been saved. It's by Christ. You remember how that section actually starts? It's with one of the most disturbing portraits of the wrath of God. Even going so far, if I remember correctly, saying we're children of wrath. On the flip side, if you are already a child of God, if you know the Lord Jesus, you rest safely in his arms. It should be a significant thing to remember this is the God that we serve. Because this is the God who has pledged to be your defender. We have unfortunately kind of neutered the character of the Lord Christ, and we've forgotten exactly who he is, right? I mean, the one who flipped tables in the temple, who beat people with a whip to get them out of the temple. I mean, you forget that part, don't you? The Lord Jesus actually beat people with a whip to get them out of the temple. The Lord Jesus who, in Revelation, when he sets the the marriage feast of the Lamb for his people, while his people are inside feasting, outside the birds are feasting on the flesh of his enemies. Total victory. This is the God who has pledged to take care of you, and he is not impotent. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's unbelievably kind. But he's not weak. I would suggest for those of you that are in the midst of great suffering or in the midst of great sorrow or great confusion or weariness or maybe you just, your heart just hurts. Please do not minimize how big God is. Because if his promises are, are being fulfilled by somebody that's just a little bit smarter than you and a little bit more powerful than you, that's not really good comfort, is it? But when you think about it, look, all of your prayers are being answered and you're being helped by the one who actually controls the very matter of the universe. Well, that's a help, isn't it? That's a help, isn't it? It also should be part of our framework in ending with this. As believers, to be reminded that while we live this life and God's enemies live this life and sometimes we can't tell exactly who's who and sometimes it seems like the wicked prosper for a time. That on judgment day, all is made right. You know, all of these great terrors and difficulties that are put into the scriptures are good reminders of what that great coming looks like. You see, the second coming is a great day. It's a great day for us. But it's a really bad day for a lot of people. And you think my mom's words on September 11th. You need to go turn on the television. A lot of people are having a really bad day. That will be the grossest understatement in human history on the second coming. And may it be that we would be faithful in proclaiming the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
proclaiming that good news, as David's already prayed, to those who already have their names in the book of life. They just don't know it yet. So on that day, all God's people will be fully gathered together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mighty power. Thank you that you put it on display in Exodus, that you defeat the false gods of Egypt. Oh, Lord, please rule in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.